0: So today we start a brand new series on my turn to serve. And I was thinking about when I first moved here five and a half years ago, and uh, we kind of like Des Moines. Des Moines is an interesting sort of a size. Uh, Joy and I have joked that if you take the West Coast where we live, San Francisco, Seattle, you take the South where we live, like Dallas, you add them together, divide by two, shrink it by about you know, two thirds, you've got Des Moines. It's an interesting sort of a blend between the South and the West Coast and it's got a good feel to it. You can get to the airport if you have to in 30 minutes, no matter how far away you are in town. You can get downtown in 15 minutes, you know, from pretty much wherever you are, it's kind of nice. And when we moved here, uh, we rented a house up in Old Town or Uptown or whatever it's called, Ankeny, and um, tried to get my bearings, tried to get my landmarks down. And people who are from here, they just assume that you know everything, right? You know, you know where everything is. And I didn't know where everything was. It took me probably six weeks to figure out how to pronounce oral labor Road. It's Oraliber. That's how you pronounce it. Oraliber. Anywhere else in the country, it wouldn't be oral labor But you say Oraliber, and people look at you like there's something wrong with you. You ask questions like, where do you shop? Oh, well, I shop at, at High V. That's where everybody shops. But then you'll meet somebody and they'll say, I shop at Fairway. And they'll whisper it. They don't say it out loud because there's social pressure. And then you'll find somebody every once in a while who says, Aldi's! And they yell it really loud like it's this big secret, you know. And, and so you learn your way around. I learned that State Street goes all the way downtown. So does Ankeny Boulevard, but it's not called Ankeny Boulevard or State Street. It changes to 14th or 2nd, depending on where you are. Important thing to figure out. If you don't like those two roads, hit 6th Street. You can go all the way down to 6th Avenue, all the way downtown if you don't mind wandering through some neighborhoods. You kind of figure it out. But the landmarks are important. Getting your bearings. Studying the Bible is no no different. And there are two different ways to get your bearings when you study scripture. And they're both really good ways. And one of the ways you probably do a lot on your own, one of the ways maybe um, you don't do as much on your own but we do it together. And I was driving through Ankeny not too long ago. Joy and I like to go on drives at night together. You know, usually you don't have your cell phone in front of you. You're not watching TV or doing anything. You just can talk, right? So you're side by side, drive around, we're talking. And I remember a friend of mine had told me that he grew up at a house right next to a little tiny church in a little neighborhood in downtown Ankeny um, that was right by an apartment complex. You know, he described it to me and I had no idea where it was. No idea where it was. Joy and I were driving. I turned left. I turned right. You know, we're driving through the neighborhoods, looking at houses. All of a sudden, I see this church. And I'm like, that's gotta be the church that he was talking about. There's the apartment complex, there's the little house, there's the, and it all of a sudden made sense to me and my neighborhood got a little more clear, my world got a little bit bigger, I was a little more familiar and comfortable and landmarks are really important. As we study the Bible, it's really important for us to establish these landmarks, to get to know our neighborhood and and to do that, sometimes we just dive in and we study and we learn and we take classes and that's good. But then sometimes we just become familiar with things as we take drives together through the Word of God. And I'll remind you, and I'll say, here, remember over here, and I'll point out a landmark. And maybe over here, here's a landmark. And this is a neighborhood. And when we're on our way this direction, you're probably going to, and things become so familiar to you that when you read Scripture, it feels like home. And that's my desire, my goal for us. So I repeat things from time to time, remind you of things, and these things help us as we are guided from where it is we are to where we wanna go. Now, when I moved here, the most important thing for me to know was where the church was. That was the most important thing because that's where I went to work, right? And if you didn't know where the church was, if I drove north toward Ames, I would have been really bad in bad bad shape. And so I figured out where the church was. That was my first thing. And then I knew how to get home. And those two things, once I had those two things nailed down, I had no problem figuring out everything else. Today, we're going to be talking about the two landmarks in your biblical neighborhood and your understanding, your worldview that are really important, one in particular that would be home, the most important thing for you to know. When you're wandering around, driving, learning, gleaning, collecting, establishing your map, we continue to go home. It's the center. It's salvation. And this series is about serving. It's my turn to serve, just like Jesus. But the reason that we serve isn't because we just like to do good works and it makes us feel good and we're trying to make the world a happier place. And I mean, all those things are great and probably true, but the reason we serve, the foundation of our service is a personal relationship with our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Salvation, we who have been saved by grace through faith. That's the reason, that's home. It's the center of our map, it's our landmark that makes everything else make sense. So let's look briefly at Matthew 25 we talked about this passage two weeks ago and you'll most likely see it again next week and we're gonna use this as a diving board to spring from Matthew 25 to Romans 8 where the Apostle Paul talks about the heart of this but this passage is sort of interesting because Jesus is talking about final judgment now you want to get somebody's attention talk about final judgment it's like the exam right that that uh, we all want to pass and it's really simple. It's where Jesus is talking about how after we pass away or when he comes again to collect us to be with him, we answer for the decision that we made about Jesus. And um, those who've decided to become believers, spend eternity with him in heaven. Those who decided to reject Jesus, spend eternity in separation in hell. It's hard reality, but true. And so Jesus is talking and he's saying, this is kind of what it's going to be like. I want to read this to you, and then we're going to move pretty quickly. Now, I challenged the first service. I said, guys, I know you're smarter than the average church. You guys are already up. You're ready. You're thinking. You're caffeinated. You're ready to, to really to dive into this stuff. There's going to be a lot of information today. And I know you guys, smarter than the average bear, right? You're paying more attention. You're ready to go. And so you can do it, but just stay with me. The whole thing, I know when we get to the end, you'll be glad you did. Matthew 25, 34, and 35. Then the king will say to those on his right, come you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink and I was a stranger and you invited me in. Now we're gonna see more about this passage. We talked about it two weeks ago. We'll talk more about it next week. But these are seeming to be just sort of, um, well, How am I a Christian? Why would Jesus let me into heaven? Because I did good things for people, because I fed people who were hungry and gave people who were thirsty a drink and opened my home to to strangers. And what Jesus is saying is, is that the reason that we can be confident that we are going to spend an eternity in heaven is because we've become believers in Jesus Christ that we're saved. The behaviors come from the belief, the relationship that changes our lives. The motivation, the reason, home, the bearing point on our map, on our biblical worldview, the reason our church is structured the way it is, that our budget is set up the way it is, that our prayer life is set up the way it is, is so that we can do the things that Jesus would do if he were here because he saved us from ourselves, our sin, our suffering, and our destination, which would have been Total separation from him for eternity. And so as we look at this passage, we look at salvation and this idea of salvation. And I'm going to start you off with the most boring, wooden, uh, wordy definition of salvation you could ever have. It's the kind of definition that you would get if you were in a seminary class in your first semester when you're studying systematic theology and the professor wants to impress you and overwhelm you and make you know you need to be in school. But I'm going to read it to you anyway. The deliverance... This is salvation by God's grace from eternal punishment for sin, which is granted to those who accept by faith God's conditions of repentance and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. So if you're like me, you read that, you're kind of, kind of yawn a little bit. And so I gave you my paraphrase. And this is something that would not please my systematic theology professors. But I think this is a little more consistent with where we live And it's the working definition we're going to use as we dive in today. A life-changing decision to become a follower of Christ and all the God stuff that happens afterwards. How about that? Is that one easier or better? A little more familiar? Can we wrap our our minds and our hands around this? Salvation is a life-changing decision to follow Christ and all of the good God stuff that happens afterwards. But everything changes, You and I, we go from darkness to light, from death to life, from separation from God to fellowship with God, from no way to enter heaven into guaranteed eternity in heaven. And there are some things in Scripture that are hard to understand. And this salvation is one of them. And one of the reasons is is because if it were me, I wouldn't save me. And I probably wouldn't save you either, because I would look at all the stuff you've done, all the stuff I've done, all my thoughts, all my actions, all my attitudes, all the things that displease God, I'd be like, "Uh uh-uh, nope, not Rick. But the beautiful thing about God is he looked at us, and even though you and I are so unworthy and unlovely, offers us salvation anyway. So how does he do it? What happens? I want to establish or develop or redevelop home for you, the center of your map. And the Apostle Paul does this so well as he expounds on the teaching of Jesus and he talks about what it means to be saved. Now, this passage in Romans 8 is bigger and more comprehensive than just the few verses I'm pulling out of this passage. It's a passage on how in Christ there's no condemnation, And there are nine things in this passage that talk about the Holy Spirit, who is God. The Holy Spirit is the part of God who actually initiates salvation, and I'll talk to you more about that as we go. Nine things the Holy Spirit does. This is only going to be today four of these things, with really an emphasis on one of these things. Don't leave me yet. It's going to be a whole lot better than that just sounded. So let's read this together. For those who are led by the Spirit of God are children of God. The Spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the Holy Spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship. Now, that's the center of this part of the passage. The idea or the analogy of adoption, and don't get caught up on the word sonship. In the first century when this was written, most of the society focused on uh, writing to men. And that wasn't uh, because Jesus wanted it that way. It wasn't because there's discrimination in Christianity as it's intended. Um, it's just the way culture was. Fortunately, we've moved well beyond that. So when you see the word sonship here, this is sonship, daughtership, mothership, fathership, you know, every ship, right? It's, it's us, humans, people. And by him, we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we also may share in his glory. I'm going to break this down. There's just four simple parts, but the main part is one that I think is going to encourage you. It's going to explain your salvation. It's going to explain and expound on how Jesus feels about you, and it's the reason that you and I do what we do. It's the reason our church is structured the way it's structured. The reason our calendar represents what it represents. The reason we budget the way we budget. It's the reason we pray the way that we pray. It's the reason for everything. Let's do it together. The Bible says that those of us who are Christians are led by the Spirit. I don't want to spend tons of time on this, and I could, and we have before, but the Bible says that we're led by the Spirit, and the Holy Spirit of God leads you, which means a couple of things. One is you are significant, intentional, and you matter. That God did not create you by accident, that the things that have happened to you, the things you've been through, the person you are, God has allowed, has created, has developed for purpose. And that the Holy Spirit of God leads you, has a preference for the things you do, the relationships you have. Your job is not an accident. Your marriage is not an accident. Your friends are not accidents that the Holy Spirit leads you. Now, he does that in a couple ways. And again, I'm just flying over this at a 36,000-foot level, but Scripture is one of the ways that he he does this. Have you ever been reading the Word or had somebody teaching the Word, me or another pastor, and all of a sudden, one of the passages in Scripture just jumps out and just gut punches you, and you're like, my goodness, there it is. I feel it. I sense it. I see it. It's the Holy Spirit leading you. Sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes we read the Bible, and it doesn't really seem to affect us that way it's just part of life part of being an emotional sinful human but the holy spirit leads us he leads us through his word he leads us through inspiration by encouraging us in our spirit to know what to do and what not to do and so paul starts off this section by saying since we're saved you're being led by the spirit if you've ever sensed god leading you then you are one of his children the second thing he says is that the holy spirit frees us from fear the fear we were born with. So I'm not afraid. All of us were born a little bit afraid. Unsettled. The fear of death. The questions about what is life all about. Meaning and purpose. Is there really a point? Augustine called it a God-shaped hole that we're all born with a void that only God can fill. But people try to fill it with all kinds of things. And there's a fear that if that void isn't filled, it's gonna consume us and we're gonna disappear into it. So people throw all kinds of things in there, relationships, achievement, promotions, money, addiction. And We continue to try to feed it and feed it and feed it, and it grows so big that eventually we know we're gonna disappear and with something. And the Holy Spirit fills that void whole, completely, fully, permanently. And that's the second thing the Apostle Paul says. Well, the third thing he says, and this is where it gets really fun, is he says the spirit that you received brought about your adoption to sonship or daughtership, right? What's that mean? That you were adopted into God's family. Now, adoption may have different connotations or meanings for you because society at different points in time during um, history has viewed it differently. I believe that adoption is beautiful. I love the concept of somebody adding somebody to their home and taking care of them. There have been some preachers over the last 20 or 30 years who warned against adoption, and they got all weird with the scriptures, and they said, you remember the sins of the father, they get passed down from the second or to the second and third generation, so you better watch out who you adopt. If you adopt somebody whose dad was a dirtbag, they're going to be a dirtbag. Or you better watch their grandpa, because if their grandpa was a... And, and people are like, oh, I better... And, I mean, nothing could be further from the truth. They're abusing a passage of Scripture that's in the Pentateuch, and it was talking about government. Now, you want to know a truth... Moses was talking about was the fact that when a government becomes corrupt, it takes generations for the government to become uncorrupt because the corruption gets so deep-seated and has its grip on, on a society that it just takes a while. But it wasn't talking about a father passing on to a child and to the contrary. The Bible is full of pictures of, of adoption But we have to understand the biblical idea of adoption, but we also have to understand the cultural idea of adoption. Because when the apostle Paul was driving around his neighborhood, stay with me friends, when he was driving around his neighborhood, walking around, riding a donkey or a horse around, it looked different than our neighborhood. So we have to understand his neighborhood and what it looked like to be able to translate it to our neighborhood and see the truth and and how powerful it is. So what did adoption look like in first century Christian times or Roman times, and they had something—a relationship that the Romans, the Romans had. I kind of like it. I'd kinda, I kind of—I think it should be that way still. It's called the um, *Patria Potestas*, and it means the father has absolute power. As a dad, well, my dad's still alive, so maybe I don't want that to be the case. Because what it meant is that um, the father had absolute power over their children and their family until he died and then it was passed on to the erring son. That was the culture. So that would mean that even my dad today, who I love, by the way, and I hope he's watching this morning, it would mean that I would have to check with him before I made any decisions, financial, relational, or otherwise. Now, he probably thinks that would be a good idea. I wouldn't like that a whole lot. However, with my boys, Richard and Nathan, I think they should check with me before they make any big decisions. I think that would be a good idea. They probably don't think so, but that's the way that it was in Roman society. And the father, even at the beginning of the Roman government during those times, could choose to take the life of his children, which my boys are probably glad that my wife didn't have the ability to do that when they were growing up. If it was legal, she may have killed one of them. I don't know. (laughs) Maybe not. Richard or Nathan, which one wouldn't have made it? Do you know? (laughs) So there was a process, and you say, "Well, why would adoption even be a thing? Now this wasn't about taking children off the street. In the first century, they had a way to do that, but they would bring children into their home who were unfortunate, underprivileged, and they would allow them to be servants. It sounds bad in our society, it really wasn't in their society. They gave them a place to live, to thrive, to be educated, they took care of them, but they weren't brought into the family. Oftentimes in the first century, if a Roman father, a patriarch, um, who had a lot to offer, who had a lot of money, who had business, who had property, he would have to pass it on to his oldest son. And sometimes these fathers would look at their kids and and, uh, say, no, we know this one could use a little more smarts. Um, This one needs a little more self-discipline. I don't think I have any good ones. I don't know, I'm going to blame his mom, their mom, right? I mean, I, and so they would look at their children and they would think, I got to have a different kid. So then they'd head down to the nursery and start looking at your kids, right? And what are you doing? I'm trying to find me a kid that can you know, be my rightful heir. Well, don't look at my kids, you know. Um, and they would find a child, a boy, um, who they thought could really be, be the next thing they could pass down to. So he would have to go into this adopted father-to-be to a uh, discussion, with the birth father of this child. They would come to terms. And you might say, why in the world would they come to terms? Who would give away their kid? Now, back in the day, opportunity was a lot harder to come by than it is right now. And success was something that you oftentimes had to be born into. It didn't really matter how capable you were if you didn't have a path sort of paved for you. And that was done oftentimes by the relationships of your family. And so sometimes a dad who loved their kid would realize the best opportunity they had for success would be to take him and put him in somebody else's home. Different time, different context, it happened. So they would go into an arrangement. They would decide, yes, my son would be better off in your home. And then they would have a symbolic ceremony. It was the first of two different parts to this ceremony. This was called the Mansapatio. And um, what they would do, and it was sort of a beautiful thing, they would have seven witnesses, who were impartial, who had respect in the community, and the adopted father-to-be would take three pieces of copper, and there was a scale that was set up. Now, on the other side, there was the birth father and the son, and they would both walk up to the scale. The adopted father would put three pieces of copper on the scale, and the over here, the birth father would walk up with his son the first time and say, uh-uh, no deal, and take his son away. It represented the fact that kids meant something, that it was a significant thing, that they weren't just casting you know, their, their children to, to just anyone. Well, they would do it a second time. The adopted father would come to the scale, and he would put these three pieces of copper on. The birth father would walk up with his child, and he would shake his head and say, no. Well, the third time, they would do the deal. The birth father would walk the child around the scale and hand him to the adopted father, and then the first part of the two-part ceremony was over. Then the adopted father would have to go to the judge and make a case, a legal case, as to why he could adopt this child, what his intentions and plans were for this child, and then it was put in the book, and it was sealed. And then once that happened, it was done. Now, the adoption process really had four different implications, four different things uh, that it involved, and it's not like even adoption in our day. The first thing is that the adopted son lost all rights, and women were adopted sometimes in the Roman society, just not quite as often. The adopted son lost all rights to his former family. And all relationship, now you guys are thinking salvation, salvation, the analogy adoption, so track with me here, okay? All of the past, the relationships to the old family was gone, separated. Second thing, the adopted child would inherit the father's estate, even if there were birth children which means that if you were the oldest son and the father had looked at you and said, "Uh uh-uh, not you, and adopted someone else, they would be above you in that top position, and there was no way that that top position was going to change. So it stunk for the kids who were the birth kids. For the adopted kid, they were moved to the top of the list, guaranteed to inherit all of the great stuff that would eventually come to them. The third thing The old life, not just the old family, but the old life was completely erased. Does this sound like forgiveness to you? Where your sins of the past were no longer held against you. The legal record expunged. Debts paid, mistakes forgotten. It even sounds a little bit like being born again, doesn't it? The fourth thing. The adopted son was permanently and irrevocably. Let me say that again. Permanently and irrevocably the son of the father with all the rights that came from that. The adoption was permanent. What if an adopted father said, hmm, maybe I shouldn't have done it. He didn't have the legal right. He didn't have the authority to go back on his decision. What if the kid said, I'm not gonna be a member of this family anymore? Couldn't happen. Wasn't a provision in the law that would allow for this decision to go back to the way that it used to be? What does that teach us about our salvation? That it's permanent. That it's irrevocable. The adoption was more powerful than a birth. And the Apostle Paul uses this analogy to explain to us what happens to us, the foundation, the bearing point, the home base for our worldview, for our map. We become sons and daughters because of adoption, and it changes the legal status of our lives. Title and rights. Well, there's a fourth thing that Romans talks about, Romans 8. The fourth thing is that the Holy Spirit provides assurance of salvation, Interesting, because sometimes you and I, we forget, and sometimes we don't feel saved, and sometimes we worry that maybe, you know, it's really not, didn't really happen, that maybe we weren't sure, that maybe, you know, we we doubt, we second guess. Kind of a cool picture here, because remember the seven witnesses that I told you about in the adoption, where they had seven witnesses? Why would they have seven witnesses? Because, you know, what if the dad died, the adopted father? Then what if the kids, the birth kids, challenged the adoption and said it never happened? What if they presented a great case? What if it was compelling? What if it was sneaky? What if it was stressful? There were seven witnesses who would stand up and they would say, I was there, it happened. It's real, it's legal, it's irrevocable, it's permanent. Isaiah called the Holy Spirit, the prophet Isaiah, you read about him in the Old Testament, there's a whole book with his name on it. He called the Holy Spirit the sevenfold spirit. Coincidence? I don't know, I think it's beautiful. The Holy Spirit witnesses our salvation and seals it. So from time to time, when you and I go through periods of doubt or wonder, he reminds us, yeah, you're a believer, you're saved. Now, in the Bible, adoption has been mentioned in the Old Testament. It's important for us to know. So as we conclude, I wanna share with you a really powerful story. The first time adoption was mentioned in the Old Testament... This could be a Bible trivia test. Moses, he was adopted. Remember, put in a basket, put in the river, found, adopted. Second time, this would be a little harder to get. um, This was Esther who was adopted by Mordecai. We're not talking about that story either. Those are the first two times. Third time, really, really powerful story, the one we're going to talk about. A king, a king named David. David was a person who had more of the Old Testament written about him than any other person a person who started off nothing, the forgotten son of a dad with too many sons to remember the little one. Elevated by God to the position of king. Amazing story, an amazing life. But David had an enemy. and He didn't want the enemy. Sometimes enemies just happen, right? You don't choose them, they choose you. Well, this was an enemy who chose David. His name was Saul. And David tried to make peace. I don't want to be your enemy. I want to be loyal. Saul was the king before David. And God, because David was following God and God was directing history to bring us to this point today, eventually wiped Saul off the map. I'm skipping tons of good detail. I can't talk about it right now. Where Saul and his family Longer existed. But David, and this is a plot thickener, a juicy, important plot point, had a best friend, the kind of friend that you and I are blessed if we have, named Jonathan. Jonathan had risked his life for David, David for Jonathan, but Jonathan was the son of Saul, David's arch enemy. By this point, Jonathan had been dead for 15 years or so. And David, an older man, was reminiscing, looking back on his life. King, enemies destroyed. Probably a little nostalgic, remembering Jonathan. So he calls one of the servants, who was kind of related to Saul and to Saul's family and kingdom, and says, is there anybody left? I want to do something nice for somebody, I think, but is there anybody left? And this servant said, well, nobody to speak of, nobody you're interested in. I mean, there is this one guy, um, you probably don't want, nah, nope, no one left. David said, no, tell me about that guy. So the servant said, well, he's Jonathan's son. So David, of course, leans in. He's like, oh, Jonathan, my best friend. I miss him so much. Tell me, where he, where is he? So the servant's like, well, you don't want him. What's his name? His name's Mephibosheth. Well, Mephibosheth doesn't mean anything to you and I. We probably wouldn't name our kids that. It would be a little different, but... What it meant to them was called shameful one. Well, why? When he was five years old, Mephibosheth, his nurse was helping him flee from a dramatic situation. She fell, broke both of his legs. He was crippled, maimed, couldn't walk. Because of that, unless you had somebody to take care of you, like he did at the beginning of his life, but didn't for most of his life, you were cast out. um, One of the lowest of the low in society, Somebody who, and I'm not saying this as a value judgment, I'm telling you how they were perceived, was worthless. And David said, where is he? And so this servant, he was like, well, he lives in a place called Lodabar, which literally means wasteland, barren wasteland. He's a nobody. He's a shameful one from a barren wasteland. And David said, that's the one I want. The servant's like, no, you don't. Why would you want him? David said, get him for me. So Mephibosheth, he's coming to see David who had wiped out his whole family. Um, The last one left, hiding in obscurity, not wanting to draw any attention to himself. Here he was on the spot. Comes in, throws himself on the ground and he calls himself to David a dead dog. He said, why would you want me a dead dog? I'm not worth killing I'm not worth talking to. Just let me go back to nowhere and be nothing. And David said, I love your dad, and I love you. This is my paraphrase. And I'm going to give you everything that your grandpa used to rule and a few dozen servants to rule them with. And not only am I going to give this to you, but I'm not going to send you back you're gonna sit at my table and eat with me as one of my children, as my son. And Mephibosheth had no choice but to accept. He had nothing to offer except his broken self. A no one from nowhere. So you look at this idea of adoption as we close. And we look at ourselves, and I look at myself like Mephibosheth. What do I have to offer God? I'm a no one from nowhere, a shameful one from a barren place. But God looks at us like the birth father in story number one, and the adopted father, more importantly, in this illustration of Roman adoption. And he says, I see in you potential that you don't even know is there. I choose you, even if you wouldn't choose yourself. And if you'll let me, I want to adopt you into my family as my child. And when you and I grasp the magnitude of that gesture and how powerful and life-changing it is, we begin to live our lives a different way. And so when we look all the way back to Matthew chapter 25, and Jesus is looking at the works that people are doing, the good works. Some people, they may say, well, good works are what save us. Let's just get to the end of life and throw all of our goodness on the cosmic scale and hope it outtips the badness and we end up sliding into heaven. It doesn't work that way. What Jesus says is, you're coming to heaven because I've adopted you as my child. And the good works that you've done are proof that you were really converted, that you really understood salvation, that you really belong to me. Evidence. So what do I do about it? Well, this is what our next series is about. This is why we're doing the Shape series on Wednesday evenings. That's why you'll come Wednesday night And you'll hear about H in shape, heart, what it is you're good at, what it is that God has made you passionate about, the things you love. And then next week, we're going to talk about my turn to serve. But I want you to understand why we serve. This is the relationship that we have with Jesus. This is the relationship I want our entire world to have with Jesus. This is the relationship that we take outside our walls, and we love and serve our community in a way where they can see Jesus in us, even in our brokenness, and they can find this peace, hope, and freedom too. It's home. It's our burying point. And we'll keep coming back to it. Father, thank you so much for my friends.